The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 10.45 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to turn to the book of Romans, to Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is God's holy word. This week marks the 505th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, tomorrow to be exact. And on that day, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And what Luther was protesting is really the very heart of the gospel. What he was protesting was this uh, practice in the Roman Catholic Church called indulgences, the selling of indulgences. And what an indulgence was, is it was a piece of paper that the Pope issued. And the Pope would give you this piece of paper for a price if you, if you purchased it. And that piece of paper guaranteed that you would spend less time in purgatory or for a price if you had a family member that you were unsure about, unsure about their eternal state, that you could purchase an indulgence for them and ensure that they wouldn't spend time in purgatory. And what the Catholic Church was doing is, is they were seeking to raise funds to build St. Peter's Basilica. Anybody ever been to St. Peter's Basilica there in Rome? They needed to raise funds, and they came up with this idea of this indulgence to do it. And the Pope sent out salesmen all throughout the, the Holy Roman Empire, and one of them, a uh, very famous, effective salesman, was named Johannes Tetzel. And he is famous for saying, every time a coin in the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory springs. So what had happened is Luther had come to a saving knowledge of the gospel. He knew there wasn't this purgatory. He knew that the, the church couldn't guarantee that someone wouldn't spend time in, in purgatory. He'd come to understand what we're going to talk about today, the doctrine of justification by faith only. And he was frustrated and concerned that his people would be duped into buying an indulgence. And so he is protesting this. And I just wanted to read you this morning three of the theses that he posted on that castle door. This is the very first one. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance is different from doing penance. The Roman Catholic Church had developed a whole doctrine of uh, doing penance, of, of buying um, of buying these indulgences. And Luther said, look, it's not something that you do. It's this change in your mind that constitutes repentance. It's a change in your mind about Christ and a change in your mind about sin before a holy God. This is number five. He said, the Pope neither desires nor is able to remit any penalties except those imposed by his own authority or that of the canons. In other words, uh, nobody has the authority to forgive your sins except for God. Nobody has that authority. And he says the Pope doesn't have the authority to sell you a piece of paper and say you're forgiven. The only thing that the Pope has the authority to do is to remit something that he himself has said. 
because only God has the authority to forgive sins. And then number 62, I love this. He says, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. In other words, there's not this treasury of merit that the Pope can pull from in order to just give a blanket forgiveness. The treasure of the church, and this has always been the case, the treasure of the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ alone, period, the end. That is the true treasure. That is the great message. And these theses struck at the very center of Roman Catholic theology and at the very center of the human predicament, because this is what, in, in the heart of heart, every person is asking. Every person is asking the question, how do I know that I can be right before a holy God? How do you know that when you face death that you will go to heaven? How can you have that assurance? That is the question that every single person asks. How can you give that assurance to somebody? How can you know that you will go to heaven? How do you know that you are right with God? Assurance. Let me give you a definition. Assurance is the knowledge and confidence that you are saved by Christ and will inherit all of his benefits, including heaven. It's this confidence, this bold confidence of where you stand with God that you know that God will forgive you and that you will inherit heaven on the last day. Now, let me give you a little exercise. I want you to take your pen, and on that sheet of paper in front of you, I want you to write a number down, a number that expresses your confidence that when you die, when you pass from from this earth, that you will go to heaven. Zero being you're not sure at all, a hundred being you're completely sure. I want you to write that number down right there. What is your level of confidence? Roman Catholicism said and still says that you can never have 100% assurance. Did you know that? You can never have 100% assurance. Here's why. Two reasons. Because you never know how many works are good enough to earn salvation because salvation is by faith and works. And also, you never know if before you die you won't commit what's called a mortal sin, which will cause you to lose your salvation. If you murder someone, if you commit adultery, if you commit a mortal sin, then you'll lose your salvation. So Roman Catholicism, if you tell somebody that you are 100%, they'll say, how could, how could you possibly be 100%? Because they're basing that number on your own performance. Now, Mainline Protestantism, and what I mean by mainline Protestantism is most of the churches right down here has, has swung the opposite direction, and they've given a false assurance to everybody if you darken their doors. They say, you're all God's children. You don't have to worry about anything. You just have to go try to, to, to carry out the golden rule, love other people, be a good person, and when you die, you don't have anything to worry about. You know, you'll probably uh, die, and, and, and you'll see a, a highway to hell and a stairway to heaven, and you'll know which one to take. That's, that's mainline. Some of you just got that. <laughs> but they've said, look, you can have this assurance just because your parents were Christians, just because you've... You've, you've come to church just because you grew up in the church. And, and that idea has, has really advanced within evangelicalism as well. Anybody remember uh, a book called Love Wins by Rob Bell? Uh, Rob Bell said, in the end, love is going to win the day, that God is just going to forgive everybody, that everybody is going to, to make it in. And so you don't have to worry about where you stand before God. You don't have to worry about it. Now, what Luther and the Reformers said is, one, you do need to worry about it, that not everybody is justified, not everybody can have 100% certainty, but there is a way contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches to have 100% certainty, complete assurance that's not, 
imagine that's not contrived. And what I want to do this morning is I want to show you how you can arrive at 100% assurance, how you can know that you know that you know when you leave these doors that you when you exit this life, we'll go straight to heaven. I want to teach you that this morning. And it's all right here in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It begins, it begins with knowing the doctrine of justification by faith. Knowing the doctrine of justification by faith. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, therefore, and of course the therefore is pointing back to the first four chapters. He says, having been justified by faith. Therefore, having been justified by faith. I want you to underline that word justified. The Greek word is dikaio, and it means to render a favorable courtroom verdict, a favorable verdict that the judge gives at the end of a trial. You could say to vindicate. If you're accused of a crime that you didn't commit, when the judge pronounces the sentence at the end and he pronounces you as, as innocence, you are vindicated. It's a, it's a vindication of the innocence. Uh, you remember Joseph? Joseph worked in, in Potiphar's house and, and Potiphar's wife uh, tried to seduce him and then grabbed his cloak and accused him of of, of trying to assault her, and he was thrown in prison, and, and years go by, and, and finally he interprets the dreams of Potiphar's servants, and then he interprets Potiphar's dreams, and he, he, he comes out of the prison, and ultimately, ultimately he's vindicated, he's justified. Did, did any of you ever see that movie with Harrison Ford, The Fugitive, where they they accused him of, of killing his wife, and, and he goes to prison, and he uh, eventually escapes, and Tommy Lee Jones is a U.S. marshal trying to catch him. And in the end, as you would have it, the, the real criminal is caught, and he is justified. He's vindicated. So it's a declaration, it's a legal declaration that you are in the right. That's what justification means. And what Paul is talking about here, he's not talking about just any justification. He's talking about our justification before God, that God renders a verdict of being justified, of being in the right, of being perfectly righteous. But here's the problem. God cannot and will not simply declare guilty sinners righteous. Because he's a righteous judge. He will not do it. He will not just sweep sin under the rug. So let me ask a question. Is anybody here this morning perfect? Any of y'all just have, have never sinned? Raise your hand. Okay, we don't, have, we don't have somebody claiming to be Jesus in here. That's good. So everybody in here has sinned. Everybody. I don't see any hands being raised. So everybody's admittedly a sinner. So if you stand before God right now, how could God declare you righteous? How could God vindicate you if you're actually in the wrong? Do you see that? God can't just say, I forgive you, because you are guilty. You are guilty. If somebody murdered a member of your family you showed up at the day of sentencing, and the, and the, uh, the accused said, Judge, I, I admit that I did it. I know that I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm so sorry. Would you just forgive me? I promise. I'll wash your car every week for the rest of my life. I'll go help the poor. And the judge says, I see that you're sorry. I'm just going to forgive you. What would you say? You would say, justice needs to be done. This is a, this is a huge injustice. So God cannot simply vindicate and declare sinners righteous. And if you turn over to, to chapter 3, turn over to chapter 3, I want you to see how, how Paul develops this argument, how Paul, as a prosecuting attorney, first is going to work to establish your guilt before God. Because this, this is what you need to know, and, and admittedly, you know it, 
but you're guilty. And by the way, this is why the world doesn't like the Bible. Because the Bible, before it gives you the good news, tells you the bad news, just like a good doctor does. But look what Paul says in verse 9 in in chapter 3. He says, what then, are we Jews any better off? He says, no, not all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So, everybody is a sinner. We're all under sin. It doesn't matter if you're a Greek or you're a Jew. He said in in Romans chapter 1, he says the Greeks, the Gentiles, they're idolaters. They exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator. In in chapter 2, he says the Jew, you know, you pass judgment on the Gentiles, but you do the very same thing. You're just as guilty. He says in verse 10, look at verse 10, he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Does that sound like there's an exception there? Maybe for your child? No. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We aren't born good people. We're born coming out smoking big cigars. I think that's the New Living Translation. We're we're born at enmity with God. Look at verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. If you skip down to verse 23, he says, blanket statement, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God of God. If you look up at 19, look at just as a good prosecuting attorney, look what he says. He says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What he's saying there is that the reason why the law was given, why the Ten Commandments were given, is so that you would know that you are a sinner before God. You look at those Ten Commandments, you hold them up, and you see that you fall short. And it's given, Paul says, to stop your mouth, to stop your mouth. Verse 24, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Did you hear that? By works of the law. No human being will be vindicated in God's sight. I was talking to some people this week, and I was just asking them the diagnostic questions. You know, if you were to stand before God, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And one of them said, I believe in myself. I believe in myself. And I I said, look, you can't believe in yourself. And I quoted this verse, Romans 3.20. Because by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. But that's what our culture is telling people, right? Our culture is just telling people, look inside yourself. Believe in yourself. You're, you got it. You're good enough. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Your problem is you don't believe in yourself enough. I even hear this from, from Christians. And they psychologize it with Scripture. No. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law is the diagnostic that shows you that you are a sinner before God. God, in your own works, God is going to declare you guilty 100% of the time. 100% of the time. So that leads to the, the good news of the gospel. This is the great mystery of Christianity. This, this is the mystery right here. How does God, as a righteous God, vindicate the ungodly. How does God declare sinners righteous? This right here is the very heart of the gospel, and this is what God did. He, God made a way for sinners to be justified in His sight by sending His Son to become a man, live a perfect, righteous life for 33 years, and then if you look at verse 25, look at verse 25, This man, the Lord Jesus Christ, you see it there in the the previous verse, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
That word propitiation is a very important word. It means a sacrifice that pleases God by satisfying his wrath and anger. One theologian, John Murray, said propitiation contemplates our liability to the wrath of God and is the provision of grace whereby we may be freed from that wrath. Now, Paul says that God put forward his son as a propitiation, and then look at this next phrase, by his blood, by his blood. And what this pictures is something that occurred all the way back in the Old Testament, when the high priest on the Day of Atonement would take a goat, he would slit its throat, and he would take the blood of that goat And he would go into the very holy of holies, the inner sanctum of the tabernacle and then the temple. And then he would put that blood on the Ark of the Covenant between those two angels on the mercy seat. And that blood was a substitute for the people, for their sins. Now, Paul says, and the writer of Hebrews says, that the blood actually never forgave anybody. It was all pointing forward to the blood of the Lamb of God. You see, when Jesus was shedding his blood on the cross, God was pouring out on him that wrath that you and I deserve for our sin. Jesus, in six hours, was absorbing what would take us in eternity in hell to pay, which is the wrath of God You see, sometimes we ask the question, what does Jesus save us from? And we say, well, he saves us from our sin. He saves us from ourselves. He saves us from from, uh, uh, a meaningless life. Those things are all true. But at the heart, Jesus saves us from the wrath of God Almighty. So that, so that God can look at you with your sins washed away. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. John says in 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation, the sin penalty for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. He's our substitute. Christ dying in your place for your sins. And I want to teach you a word this morning. And the word is called imputation. Imputation. Write it down. Remember it. Imputation means to credit you with something. And in the gospel, there is a double imputation that takes place. In the gospel, this is how God can declare a sinner who deserves judgment to be righteous. God declares the sinner righteous with the credited righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the good works that he has done, credited to you. And then, all of your sins that you have done, credited to him. And God then declares you righteous in his Son. Look, look at verse 24, the, the verse above this. He says, and you are justified. So God declares you righteous by his grace as a gift. So it's something that's given to you. Christ's righteousness, his good works given to you. Your sin taking, taken away through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that mean that every single person on this planet is saved? No. Because the way that God credits you with what Christ has done is through what? Faith. Faith. Faith is the instrument by which God declares you righteous. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. He exercised faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then in verse 5, he says, and to the one who does not work, 
does not try to earn salvation, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So it's very important for you to have assurance of salvation, that you know the way to heaven, that you know the way to heaven. The way to heaven is not through your good works. It's through a bloody cross and his righteous life. And so the question is, this is the question, is have you personally trusted Christ for your salvation? Have you put your faith in him and his death for you? Have you trusted him? I talk to people all the time, listen, all the time. And they say, yeah, you know, I I wish I could be sure, but I got to try and clean up my life a little bit first. I need to start going to church a little bit. I need to start reading my Bible a little bit. I need to start helping people a little bit. No, stop working and believe. You will never get there by works of the law, never. And, And that right there is the message of justification by faith. And you got to know it backwards and forwards because the devil's going to hurl accusations at you. You're not good enough. You'll never make it. And you got to look at the devil and say, by the blood of the lamb, I will. I will make it, not because it depends on me, but because I have faith in him. So that's, that's number one. Number two is then, you, you know this doctrine that Paul's taught, and then you rest in the peace of God. You rest in the peace of God. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 5. Paul says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, this peace that Paul is talking about here is not subjective. It is not a feeling. It is not an emotion. There there is that. God does give you, in the power of the Holy Spirit, an existential peace in your spirit. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about that peace. He's talking about a peace outside of yourself. It is terms of peace that are drawn up after a war. Remember Grant and Lee met at Appomattox Courthouse and drew up terms of peace that ended the Civil War. That's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about a treaty that has been made between us and God. Now, there's several implications of of Paul's statement. First, first implication, and this is obvious, is that we were once enemies of God. If peace has been drawn up, we were once enemies, hostile to God. And if you look down at verse 10, Paul says that. For if while we were enemies, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And then in Colossians 1.21, Paul says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So man is an enemy of God. And that explains, if you look around in our culture, what's going on. And, and this has been going on since the beginning of time, since Adam's fall. Man isn't born loving God. Man is born hating God. The rebellion against God is a moral rebellion because man doesn't want anything to do with God. Uh, when Luther was struggling before he, he understood the doctrine of justification by faith, he, says, he said, I don't love God. I hate God. I hate God. And, and that's the cry of so many people today, deep down. It's not that they're ambivalent or, or just uh, lackadaisical towards the claims of Christianity. It's that they're in rebellion against God. And moreover, here's the other implication. Not only were we enemies of God, God was once an enemy of us. The, the, the place of an unbeliever is a place of wrath and God's hostility. Uh, Don't believe me? Look at these verses. I I know we talk about God's love, but we also need to talk about his present wrath. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign until he has put 
all his enemies under his feet. The psalmist says in Psalm 712, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery darts. And then Revelation 19.15, the apostle John records, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So God isn't just a God of love. God is a God of wrath. And until you are under the banner of Christ, listen very carefully, you are under the wrath of God. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, the most famous sermon that's ever been preached in America is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And this was Edwards' thesis. He says, until you repent, until you come to Christ humbly and, and, and ask him to save you, you are under the wrath of God. God looks at you with anger. And what's to, what's to prevent you any moment from dying and stepping off into eternal anger forever and ever? What's to prevent that? He said, you're like a spider dangling, and there's one, one string, and at any moment that can be cut, and you'll fall into darkness, and you'll be under the wrath of God. And Edwards preached that, and he said, but today is the day of salvation. Repent and trust in Christ. You can no longer be under the wrath, but under the love of God. And revival started, and people repented because they knew what was at stake. And see what, this is such glorious news for you. This is something that you need to understand, that if you have truly trusted Christ, you are now at peace with God. You are now no longer under the wrath of God. A peace treaty has been drawn up, and it is a, it is a, a treaty of reconciliation. R.C. Sproul once said, Christ is our peace, so for us there is no more war with God. But here's the thing. This truth is something that you need to know in your mind. It's not something that you feel. You need to know this in your mind for your own assurance that if you have trusted in Christ truly, that you are now at peace with God. You need to know this and preach this to yourself. You need to remind yourself that this terms of peace has, has been drawn up, and it's through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has negotiated these terms of peace, praise be to God. But you need to remind yourself of these things, that you've been reconciled to Him and this is why, by the way, that Paul calls the gospel in Ephesians 6.15, the gospel of peace. This is why, as, as ambassadors of Christ, we are given this ministry of reconciliation. Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, Jesus Christ testifies to us that if you've trusted Him, that you are at peace with God. You are at peace with God. God is no longer angry at you when you sin. Now, God might discipline you. God, God chastens the ones He loves, but you're never going to be under God's wrath and God's anger because terms of peace have been drawn. And by the way, I know that I have assurance of salvation because I know that there are those terms of peace. You have to know it. Third, you press into the access to God. So the terms of peace, that's the result of your justification. This is the benefit of your justification, is that you now have access to God. You have access to the Father. That it's not just an ethereal, well, I'm a Christian because I believe these things and I do these things. It, it becomes you're a Christian because I know God because I have this access to him. Look at verse two. He says, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That word access is a really important word. 
and it speaks to an appearance before a great king. It's used in the Old Testament, King Cyrus in his court. It's used in the, in the Old Testament to describe the person who has access to the royal throne room. Uh, the NASB translates it an introduction. So if you think about a royal throne room and a visitor to a royal throne room, what happens? The king's sitting there, and you show up at the door to see the king. What happens? There's an introduction that's made. There's an announcement in that room that the Prince of Wales is there, and he is introduced to see the king. And so what Paul is saying is, is very important. He says, through Christ, we have obtained this introduction to God the Father by faith. We have obtained this introduction. This summer, I was in London, and this was before Queen Elizabeth died, and I was, you know, walked, walked by Parliament and, and to Buckingham Palace, and I just stood outside the gate, and for the life of me, I couldn't figure out why they wouldn't let this Texan in. But I stood there, I looked at the security, and, and uh, obviously I didn't ask to, to be let in. But, but the thing is, is I have no access. I have no introduction to see Her Majesty. None. But what Paul is saying is this, is that True Christianity, through this justifying grace, gives you this introduction with God, where you can go in to His presence at any time. Look at, look at this, um, th- this phrase here. He says, access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we stand, that's a present tense verb, in this reality of always having this access to God. You always have this access. There's never a moment in your life where you don't have this access. You've you've gained this introduction. Paul uses this word uh, several other times in in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2.18, he says, both Jews and Gentiles by faith gain access to the Father by one spirit. In Ephesians 3.12, he says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. The other picture that you could use is the same picture that we looked at earlier, which is in the Holy of Holies. And then only the high priest had that access, and it was only in carrying the blood that he was able to enter the Holy of Holies. Nobody else could go into the Holy of Holies. Remember, King Uzziah tried once to go into the Holy of Holies, and he was stricken with leprosy. But what Paul is saying here, slightly different picture, is that by the blood of Christ, through Christ, you have access into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, the veil to the Holy of Holies was written too. Because now, by the high mediator, mediator, Jesus Christ, everybody has access to God. And so the implications for, for your life in Christ are huge. That you can approach God at any time. You always have this access. You always have this introduction that you can be walking on the street. You can be sitting at your desk at work. You can be uh, talking to your grandchildren, driving them around in the car, and you always have this access to God. It never goes away because it depends on Christ and not you. It's this picture, you know, just thinking about this, of, of why we have this, this access I couldn't help but think of John 1.12 this week, where John says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And you think about children with their father. Uh, children, children, when they go visit their father at work, they don't sit outside the door knocking. At least mine don't. Mine come right in because they know that they have that access. Anybody ever see that picture of of JFK sitting in the Oval Office and his kids playing around? That's access. 
And that's the access you have to your heavenly Father. That you can ask anything of him. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For, for everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? He says in verse 11 of Matthew 7, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So there's this assurance that the believer has, and if you've been walking with the Lord a long time, and you've been walking in fellowship with him, you normally don't doubt your assurance because you commune with God on a regular basis. Somebody asks you, are you sure that you're a Christian? Say, yeah, I talk to him every day. Of course I know I'm a believer. I've, I've lived in this communion, communion with God. So of course I know that I'm a, I'm a Christian. And I think some of you, and, and, and just let me speak plainly to this. Some of you, your Christianity has been a lot of doing, but not a lot of knowing. And it must begin right here with this intimacy with God, that God has given you this access to Him through Christ. And so, the issue with your assurance will disappear if you press in, if you boldly enter with confidence. It doesn't have to be a special time every morning. Paul says, pray without ceasing. Pray during the day. Start walking with this access to God. Give your request to Him. He loves to hear the prayers of His children. Fourth, fourth and finally, look at the end of, of verse 2. This is, this is really the height of the believer's assurance, is we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Now, this is an interesting phrase, and I, and I want you to, to pay very special, special attention because it's, I, I think, difficult at first to understand exactly what Paul's talking about, but we can use deduction to figure it out. Hope. Look at that word hope. Hope in uh, the, the, the Greek language is a, is a confidence of something that will happen in the future. It's not uh, whimsical thinking, oh, I hope I will win the lottery. It's a confidence. It's, it's a surety of something that will transpire in the future. So Paul's talking about something that's future, not something that we experience now. Then he says it's the glory of God. Now, the glory of God is the manifestation of the attributes of God. It's the, the refulgent glory of God. When Moses saw God on the mountain, God put him in the cleft of the rock, and, and God's radiance uh, went out from his presence. And that's what the glory of God is. Now, if we use Scripture to inter interpret Scripture, what we understand that Paul is saying here is that there is a hope of a future manifestation of the glory of God. And that will occur, friend, at the Lord Jesus' second coming. When the Lord Jesus comes back, he will be revealed in all of his glory. In, in Acts 1, uh, it says that he was taken up to heaven in a glory cloud, a cloud of Shekinah glory. And the angels told the apostles, he said, why are you still looking up? He's going to come in the same way. He's going to come in a glory cloud from heaven, and he's going to come with an army of angels. And we will see his glory. This is, let me give you some cross-references. This is Titus 2.13. Paul says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says, 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Jude, Jesus' own brother, says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present, present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And the apostles say that when the Lord Jesus comes back in glory, that it's not just that we will see him in all of his refulgent glory, it's that we will be changed into his likeness. 
that we will share in that glory. John says in 1 John 3, 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We're going to change like a butterfly coming out of a cocoon. We're going to to look different. We'll still be our, our, our same selves, but we'll have a glorified body. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. So what Paul is saying here is, is what I think is, is one of the highest levels of assurance of salvation. That in the very heart of the believer is this rejoicing. Look at that word rejoicing. It's kakeomai, and, and it means to boast in something, to brag about something, uh, to almost be arrogant about something, to, to exalt in something. And he's saying, look, this is our boasting that we hope in this glory of God, in the Lord Jesus' return. This is our ultimate hope, and we rejoice in this. Regardless of the trials that we face in this life, this is our boast, that we know that this will, will happen. We know the Lord Jesus will come back. We know that we will be like Him. And so what this means is, is that, that the true Christian, and I want you to look in your heart right here. I want you to look in your heart, and I want you to, to think about your thoughts do you hope in the blessed coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you hope in that? Or do you say, man, I just, I just want to live my life. I want to do my thing. Yeah, I, I get all this Christian stuff. But it, I'm not really looking forward to that. Or is it your hope where you long to see him in all of his glory all of his splendor and all of his majesty and for you to shed this body of sin and to be like him no longer struggle with sin and to be with Christ Paul says to be with Christ is far better and so the 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 true believer longs for this day and and if the believer is longing for the second coming boasting in this hope of the second coming. You know what they're not worried about? They're not worried about their their salvation because they know, they know when the Lord returns that they will be like Him because you will see Him as He is. If that's your hope, praise be to God, that that is the height of assurance, that is the height of certainty. So let me just walk you through this logically how this works. Here as we close. So you begin with justification by faith. This is how you arrive at that 100% certainty. Are you truly trusting in Christ and his work apart from works? Are you truly trusting in Christ apart from works, his death and his righteous life? If you are, then you know that you are justified because it depends on what God has said, that God justifies those who believe in him. Second, if you know that you have trusted Christ in faith, then you know that you have peace with God. You are at peace with God if you've truly trusted in Him. It's that simple. You are no longer an enemy of God. And then third, you push in to, you press into this access that you have with God. You live a life of communion with God. You don't doubt your salvation because you know the Lord. You, you, you pray to him every day. You read his word. You commune with his Holy Spirit. And then fourth, this is your great hope. This is your pride. This is your boast that one day the Lord is coming back and he is going to end history. It's coming to an end. Things aren't just going to be perpetually cyclical. Nations rising and falling. There will be a kingdom that is established that will, that with a king that will reign forever and ever and ever. That is the end, and we will see his glory, and that is our hope. And if you're there, then 
If that's you, if, if you walk through that progression and you say, that's me, then you have that 100% certainty. Luther said, I have the certainty of salvation for a hundred lifetimes. And I want you to have that. But if you don't have that, you need to get right with God. Don't be like Jonathan Edwards' spider that's dangling on a string under the wrath of God. Put your faith in Christ. Don't dilly-dally. Trust Him. Come under the blood of the Lamb. And God says, today you will be justified. You will be declared righteous. And you can walk through those doors vindicated, knowing that God declares you righteous with the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's not you, that is the most important decision you can make today. I invite you as a minister of the gospel, as a minister of reconciliation, be ye reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious truth of justification that you sent your son so that you could justify the ungodly, that you could justify the unrighteous. That the Lord Jesus Christ took our sin upon himself on the cross and lived a righteous life for us so that all of us who trust him in faith can be declared righteous in him. And we thank you, Lord, for the peace that that brings, that we now walk in this place of peace with God, that we now stand in this grace in which we have access to God, that we can approach the throne of grace at any point, that we can commune with you at any point because we have this access in Christ Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, for this unbelievable hope, this hope that we boast in, that you will return in great glory and that when we see you, we will be transformed. What glorious news, what great hope, what great assurance, what great certainty. We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.